Who drove by Finney's Lane this past week? Okay, I did, of course, and uh, I immediately started thinking of Isaiah 7:14, Ahaz's unbelief and God's great detours. But as we continue along in the passage, we're going to see that that's not the final word on faith, Isaiah chapter 7 and part of 8. In fact, the message that we're going to see this morning is that unbelief does not defeat God. It can't. It doesn't win out in the end. In fact, even if there's unbelief at the highest levels in the nation of Judah, God always has his people. There's a theme that emerges in the Old Testament, a theme where There is always a group of people, we call them the remnant, who follow the Lord, who keep faith. And here's a little hint for you this morning. You really, really, really want to be part of God's remnant. That's where you want to be found. What is a remnant person? Well, the way that I would define this is I would say it's someone who dares to live by faith. And it's not because there's some super spiritual, snub-nosed elite who looks down on everyone else. Actually, the remnant tend to be kind of simple, humble folk who know the Lord, trust the Lord, follow the Lord, and that faith expresses itself in tangible ways. The remnant people are a people who proactively choose to live differently. Now, I just want to clarify what I mean by different. In scripture, when it's talking about us living differently, it's not calling us to be odd and eccentric. It's not saying that we should be unrelatable to the world. It's also not saying that we should somehow live and carve out a monastic society, living separate from the world. We're not called to isolation. It also does not call us to be contrarian. Okay, there's nothing spiritually mature about not being able to play nice in the sandbox with the other kids. Our value of generosity, in fact, we would say we should be the kind of people who share our toys with others. So as we look at Isaiah 8, we're going to see what does it really mean to be different in the midst of the world as God's remnant people. It begins with this thought that you cling to a different hope. Let's remember the background. We're in the 8th century BC. Judah, according to Isaiah's prophecy, is about to get squeezed by Assyria on all sides. Ahaz, Isaiah, in his words, says, has grabbed a tiger by the tail. He believed that he could go to Assyria, the big kid on the block. He could bribe them and that they would come in and take care two nations that are threatening him, that is Syria and Israel. Well, God isn't too pleased with that option, so he hands him the faith option on a platter. He says, listen, I'll give you whatever you ask for. Ask for anything as high as heaven, as low as the earth. I'll do it to prove that I am God. And Ahaz Well, he gives God this sanctimonious, pious response. Oh, I wouldn't put God to the test. Meanwhile, he is jamming the nuclear button as hard as he can. He's calling in Assyria. 
It turns out that Assyria's power was more tangible to Ahaz than God's power. And that's how he broke faith with the Lord. Now, while all of this is going on, you have to ask the question, well, what about God's remnant people? What about the people who are faithful to him? This flood's coming. Judah's going to be nearly wiped out. What happens to them? Well, Isaiah answers this question, and he has some very frank, clear words to say. At first, he tells us that when the flood comes, God's people aren't necessarily excluded from the flood. You see, we live in a world where when I exercise faith, when I walk by faith, it doesn't mean then that God kind of picks me up and puts me in this pain-free, problem-free bubble. He's not a bubble wrap God. If, if society experiences a reception, we might lose our jobs too. If the world goes through a pandemic, it doesn't mean faith makes me immune to a virus. I get the question a lot from people, well, why, why does God allow his own people to suffer? Why does he do that? I think as you're asking that question, you have to take a step back and realize that what you're expecting from God is, if I believe in God, I believe there should be some fringe benefits associated with that. Uh, after all, I'm putting my faith in him, and I expect to die of old age in my bed with a mostly happy life to show for it. But the Bible never promises that when we follow the Lord. And while I don't have all the answers to all the big questions, I have come to believe that God allows us to go through the pain and suffering of the world precisely because God wants us to be able to identify with the world. I can't influence people if I can't relate to them and I can't understand them. Think about Jesus. Why did he take on flesh? He was born as a babe in this pain-ridden world precisely to influence us, to reach us. And so God, in your pain and in your suffering, he is providing you with a platform to be able to showcase what it really looks like to walk with God in the midst of the pain of this world. You see, Isaiah is going to show us that if we are going to be God's remnant people, we have to look at the world differently. We have to walk through pain differently. And the way that we do that is we cling to hope. Look at verses 9 and 10, and you'll see this in the text. He says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Now, the peoples that he's speaking to here are not the remnant, but they are the peoples of the nations of the world. He says, give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, Isaiah's message here, you have to envision what he's talking about. He's casting a powerful picture for these remnant people. He's saying, listen, 
let's like make this the worst case scenario possible. We're not just talking about little old Assyria who's going to come in anymore. Let's say all the nations of the world strap on their armor, take up their swords, take counsel together, and they come charging in at us. They are going to hit the brick wall called the living God. It's a defiant message. It's like Isaiah against the world. If I was to put, update the language, Isaiah is saying, bring it on. Come at me, bro. Now, what kind of person stands up against the entire world and kind of eggs it on and says, come at me? Well, Isaiah is either really confident or he's crazy. I mean, that's the bottom line. See, I think we can learn something about biblical hope from this text and this play in the text. You know that you have biblical hope when other people think that you have lost your mind because you're not losing your mind when everyone else is losing their mind. You got that? You're not losing your mind when everyone else around you is losing your mind. Therefore, they think that you've lost your mind. Isaiah is saying, listen, even if the worst case scenario was to take place, remnant people, you are secure with God. You're secure because your hope is not tethered to present circumstances. Your hope's not tethered to your 401k. It's not tethered to the atmosphere or the feel in society, whether people feel generally positive or generally negative. It's not tethered to uh, whether or not you secure the American dream. It's not tethered to who's leading from the White House right now. Your hope is not tethered to present circumstances. Your hope is tethered to God's promises. And you see that in verse 10 in particular. He says, it shall not stand because or for God is with us. Your mind is immediately supposed to go back to Isaiah 7:14, the promise of Emmanuel. After all, the name Emmanuel means God is with us. So you could, you could actually translate verse 10 to say, it shall not stand because Emmanuel is coming. Here's the thing. God's promises are so sure that the world could never get bad enough for one of God's promises to not be fulfilled. These people were waiting for Jesus. Guess what we're doing today still? We're waiting for Jesus. We're clinging to hope. So you're different if you cling to the hope. You'll also find that you're different if you are driven by a different fear. He's moving into a very universal human emotion here. God knows that you and I deal with fear. It is a natural response, a primal response to a perceived threat, whether real or imagined. I, if you know me, am not a huge fan of heights. 
I mean, when I get up on a ladder or on a rooftop or if I'm on an airplane looking down from the window or if I'm on a mountain ledge looking down with that 100-foot fall, my brain is sending me all kinds of signals to my limbs and extremities and my heart, and it's saying, if you fall from here, it's not going to go well for you. And I actually put that fear in the bucket of a healthy fear because it's true. If I do fall, it's not going to go well for me. But there's other fears, right? There's fears that can be controlling and crippling. I was recently reading the story of Kurt Godel, a logician, mathematician, who died in 1979. He was known and renowned for his work at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. But he had developed an obsessive, compulsive thought process where he believed that someone was out there trying to poison his food. So his wife, Adele, well, she would have to cook all of his meals. And when they were away from the home, she had to taste test his food for him. Who says that chivalry's dead, right? In 1977, Adele becomes very sick, she becomes hospitalized. She can no longer kind of help manage this compulsive fear. His friends are trying to get him to eat. Nothing is working. In fact, eventually he succumbs. At the end of his life, he's 65 pounds in weight. On his official death certificate, it said this, he died of malnutrition and inanition caused by personality disturbance. Let me translate that for you. He starved himself to death because he had lost his mind due to fear. Now, you might look at that and say to yourself, well, that's a pretty extreme example of fear, but I want to suggest that it's not. I know of people who will no longer engage in real meaningful relationships with others because they have been hurt and they're afraid that it's going to happen to them again. You need relationships and your fear drives you away from a core need in your life. Or there's the fear of change. Some people would live with terrible circumstances because they're afraid of what might happen happen if things were different. There is the fear that comes about through consuming too much media. Now they say there's a term for how the mainstream media deliberately plays upon your fears. They call it fear porn. It's designed to get you hooked just like the other stuff. And the only way to deal with that fear is you actually have to quit the stuff cold turkey, in my opinion. You can't just keep consuming that stuff and then catastrophizing each and every day of your life. Isaiah has a word for the remnant people when it comes to fear. Listen to verses 11 through 15. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear or be in dread. 
But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So what is the difference that defines the remnant people when it comes to fear? Well, according to Isaiah, the remnant people trade unhealthy fear for the fear of the Lord. Oswald Chambers said it very succinctly. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. The core of these verses is verses 13 and 14. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrased it in the message. He said, if you're going to worry, worry about the holy. The holy can be either a hiding place or a boulder blocking your way. I I like the message that Isaiah is putting forward here. He's saying this about God. Even if you choose to box God out of your life, no matter what decision you make in that regard, somewhere along the way, you're going to have an encounter with the living God. And in that encounter, he can either be a sanctuary to you or he can be a boulder that causes you to stumble and trip you up on your way. And I suspect that he's a boulder because he's trying to get our attention. I have met God on both ends of the extreme in my life. When I was younger, he was a boulder. Now he's a sanctuary, and I much prefer the sanctuary, I've got to tell you. Now, what does it mean to the remnant people that God is a sanctuary? Remember, Images are powerful. Images are a way to express things and download a whole host of information as you think about that one image. Look at this image on the screen. Now, what is this image representing? Come on. Okay, good. Because I was going to say, I'll put this picture up anywhere in the world and people would be able to answer that question. Isn't that incredible? The power of an image. Here is Mickey Mouse, and I can ask you more questions based upon this image, like who drew him first? And what company does that represent? And who's your favorite character from one of their movies? And what's your favorite movie? Sing a song in your head right now from one of their movies, Hakuna Matata, of course. (laughs) If you wanted to visit Mickey Mouse's home on the East Coast, where would you have to go? If you wanted to visit his home on the West Coast, where would you have to go? Think about all of the information that can be downloaded by viewing one image. What does sanctuary mean to God's remnant people. I suggest that it means far more than Peterson's translation, hiding place. We actually are meant to go back to Exodus, the big tabernacle. In Exodus 25, verse 4, God says to his people, 
and they shall make for me a sanctuary, and I shall dwell in their midst. It's such an impractical ask of God. They're dwelling in the desert, and he's telling them, give me your best resources and build this space so that I can dwell with you and set it up and tear it down as we go. What does that tell us about God? Well, he's a God who wishes to dwell with his people. And, and if God's dwelling with his people, then his people are secure because he's with them and is highly relational. He, he goes with them as they go, meaning that there's nowhere that you could go in this life where God doesn't go with you. He goes with you into your best moments and your worst moments. Makes me think of Paul's words in Romans 8 when he said, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If you're driven by a different fear, you will have a different agenda. You will have different preoccupations. It's not to say that we don't fear things. In fact, the people of God do fear things, but they're different. I fear that my kids might not walk with the Lord. Or I fear that at some point, I might get distracted and my heart might grow cold towards the things of God or that I might be so tempted that I would succumb to a temptation and dishonor the name of God. See, for the people of God, we know that our hope involves a different substance and our fear comes from a different source. And Isaiah is going to take this one step further, and he's going to say this, that God's remnant people must be able to answer the question, what is truth? Look at verses 16 through 22. Isaiah moves on, and he says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Now, this idea of dawn here is speaking about revelation. If you're not holding to God's word, you don't have light in your life, he is saying. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. You see, Isaiah is giving his people a powerful message here that if you choose to disregard revelation, it's as if you're walking 
through this life with no guidance at all. You're, you're wandering around, you're trying to feel about as you go, but there's no clear direction. You see, just like today, these people lived in an age of misinformation, an age where there's phony forms of guidance. Now, in their worldview, they're answering the question, what is truth and how do I discover truth, just like us? And the way that they would get off in their worldview is they believed that if you could somehow connect with the dead through necromancers and mediums, then you would get insider information. You'd have a leg up, you would be in the know. How I answer those two questions, what is truth and how do I discover what is true, really says a lot about me and my worldview. If I answer the question wrongly, it gets me off. And we today, just like back then, we have some funky responses to those two questions too. Like today, we really don't even know what truth is in this culture and society. Let me just give you a couple of ideas of what the truth is not. You see, truth is not simply whatever works. We call that pragmatism. It might feel like it works to tell a lie to get what I want, but that would, be, that would not be operating in the truth. Truth is also not what makes me feel good. Uh, sometimes bad news is true, and it hurts to hear the bad news, but it's still true. Truth is not what the majority says. Just because 51% of people agree on something doesn't make it true. Truth is not defined by what was intended. I could have the best intentions and still be wrong. Truth is not what is simply believed. I could believe a lie. Truth is not subjective because two opposite realities cannot be true at the same time. That is called a logical fallacy, a logical contradiction. So then what is truth? Well, the Hebrew word emeth gives us this idea that truth is firm, it's constant, it's durable. Truth is something that is everlasting and can be relied upon. And as you're thinking about that definition, what source is eternal and always reliable. Well, it's God himself. If you look at the scriptures and they talk about the character of God, for example, in Romans 3, 4, Paul says, even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. David in Psalm 51, 4, God delights in truth. Now, does that mean that there aren't other sources of truth outside of God? I think the answer to that, of course, is no. Like, true is always true. Uh, we can look at the natural laws of the world, and we can derive truth from that. There are good books with wise counsel out there that happen to promote truth. But when you boil it down to the essence of what is the most reliable form of truth, the biblical answer is it's revelation. It's truth that comes to us from God because God is always true, which then means if I'm one of God's remnant people, 
I value the scriptures, I value the word of God above every source of truth that is put forward. Now look at verse 16, you'll notice that Isaiah is giving us counsel to hold scripture in the highest esteem. He's creating this imagery of how a scroll was handled in his day. He says it's tied up, it's sealed, they're sealing it to preserve it and to prevent tampering. It is something that is highly valued, highly esteemed, highly prized. Which means then that the deeper meaning for us is that a genuine disciple prizes God's word above everything. Why? Because it's reliable, it's authoritative, and it's true. Now, how do I give God's word that level of regard in my life? I just have a couple of thoughts here. One, one way that I do that is that my Bible, the scriptures, do not become another trinket in my house. It doesn't just kind of sit on a shelf or on a coffee table or on my bedstand, collect dust, where I'm really just kind of looking at it for a nostalgic warmth. It's present and it makes me feel good, but I don't have meaningful interaction with it. I'm not appropriating what it says. Another way you could look at it is ask yourself the question, what source of information feels most relevant in your world? What are you constantly consuming to discover truth, to receive guidance? Maybe it's social media, and maybe you go to that regularly because you value what most people think on a subject. I find myself finding Apple News, Wall Street Journal, podcasts, highly relevant. I like what the experts think on a subject. What source of information do you find yourself going to over and over and over again? Because if you were to miss out on what was said there, you'd feel like you're missing out. You have FOMO, if you will. I'll tell you, Scripture should be the most relevant source of information in our lives. It should not be something that becomes overly familiar to the point where it feels like I could go months without it because it's yesterday's news. I should experience FOMO if I'm not in church hearing the preaching of the word of God. The difference that defines us. The difference that defines us is that we are a people who do life in a different way. Not again, hiding out in a monastery, not holding up placards and yelling at people. The difference that defines us is something that you see in a person over the course of their life. I can't just look at someone in a snapshot glance and say, oh, that person loves Jesus. They might have a shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy even, and I would need time to evaluate their life. And I would be asking these questions that Isaiah is asking. Does this person lose their mind when everyone else is losing it? Well, if yes, they're no different. Do they fear what everyone else is fearing? If yes, they're kind of the same. Is there sources of truth 
held in the same esteem as the sources of truth that everyone else is holding to, more than likely, if the answer is yes, they're a carbon copy. The difference that defines us is we are a people who, when the world is losing its mind, we have peace. We are a people who look forward always with a messianic hope that Jesus is coming again. We are a people who are grounded and held firm by revelation, by God's word. Father, as we think about the difference that defines us this morning, we want to be your renovated people. We want to be different in these regards, not in some of the other regards, the broad brush regards that people sometimes view Christians as different. We want to be different because the faith that we profess grounds us. It makes a difference in our life. We're banking on it, if you will. We want to be your remnant people, Lord. We're opening our lives to you. We're inviting you. We're asking you to lead us, Lord. Be our sanctuary. We love you. And in the name of Jesus, we pray.